you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Micah, Micah chapter 5. Uh, our text this morning will be verses 1 through 5. If you're using the Chairback Bible, that's page 778. And if you're not sure where Micah is, just go to Matthew and flip back about four or five books, and you'll be in Micah in the Old Testament. Micah is one of the minor prophets. doesn't mean that his message is any less significant than the major prophets. He's just called a minor prophet because it's a shorter book. So this morning we are looking at the promised Messiah, the promised Messiah. I wasn't sure to title the message either the promised Messiah or the promised deliverer because the point that Micah is making in the text is that Christ, the Messiah, is the one who is the deliverer. But before we read or look at the text, let us go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to your word We pray that you open our eyes to see the truth of it. We pray, God, that you would open our minds to comprehend and think upon the truth of your word and how it applies to our lives. And Lord, we ask that you would do a work even within our hearts, a work of preparation, a work of continuing to grow us and sanctify us and a work of of causing us and helping us, teaching us to love your word. And so, Lord, as we read, as we hear your word proclaimed this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, for it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. The theme of the service today is expectation. You know, I think what kind of helps us to wrap our minds a little bit around expectation, uh, think about it, if, if you've got ch- children in your home or Think about even uh, yourself, put yourself, just reflect back a few years when you were a child and Christmas Day was approaching. Christmas morning um, or even Christmas Eve, that time when everyone got to open up at least one present, right? That, that time was approaching and you, you just couldn't wait. In fact, when you entered December, the calendar started for the marking off of the days to get to Christmas. And the closer you got, the more excited you got, the more giddy you got, as Jim mentioned earlier. This was a sense of expectation, right? Of, of long, we couldn't wait to see the gifts that we were going to be able to unwrap or receive at Christmas. And we, we're reminded of it. If you have children in the home, we're reminded of it when our children come up and they ask us multiple times over and over, can we open our presents yet? Can we open our presents yet? Or maybe you remember asking your parents the same question. There was a sense of great expectation, right? Perhaps that's helpful for us to think about Christ and his return. There is a sense of expectation that we as believers, as a church, ought to have as we await the return of Christ. We are to be expecting and and desiring that Christ would come quickly. That's why Paul and John both say in their writings, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. We see and read in in Micah's prophecy that the promised Messiah will deliver God's people from bondage and from slavery. As we've walked through Advent, we've highlighted the themes of hope and of preparation and of joy. All all of these themes, they, they lead our hearts to be filled with a sense of great expectation. And the great expectation is that God is acting in human history 
for the good of his people and supremely he's acting for the good of his own fame, for his own glory and and his fame among the nations. The question I want us to ponder this morning is, are we expecting that God will do a great work in and through us as his people I want to challenge us this morning to consider that God desires to do a great and glorious work of deliverance through the church in the midst of the world today. And so we must see that God's eternal plan of redemption is accomplished through Christ's coming to deliver his people from bondage and slavery to sin. The Christmas that I want us to celebrate. I I want us this Christmas to trust and to worship and to celebrate that Christ is the shepherd king who entered into our humanity to deliver us from bondage and slavery to sin. And so Christmas is about celebrating God's kingdom, that his kingdom has come in the person and work of Christ And that his mission is continuing through the church until that day, that final day when the consummation of God's kingdom will arrive and all things will be made new. In that day, there will be no more sin. There will be no more sickness, no more death because all will be overcome by the glorious victory of Christ, our conquering king. But until that day, Until that day, church, we must be about the work of God's kingdom. As Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the the setting of our text this morning is really a a message of hope and, and expectation in the midst of destruction and devastation for God's people, Israel. The prophet Micah is a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. And he's prophesying at a time when the nation of Israel is in severe decline. They're suffering God's judgment on their sin. And Micah's prophecy is filled with both judgment and with hope. In 722, the northern kingdom had fallen. Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom, had been overrun by the Assyrians. They had been devastated and just completely wiped out. And in our text this morning, 20 years later, 701 B.C., the Assyrians and Sennacherib have surrounded Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the last stronghold of the southern kingdom. King Hezekiah is ruling. And they're about to lay siege to the city. And there are people held up within the walls of the city, and they don't know what to do. Their sin has brought upon them utter devastation. And it's at this point that we find the prophet Micah speaking a word. In chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, follow along as I read. Micah says, Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth, or his coming, are from long ago, from the days of eternity. 
Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Micah's prophecy of hope isn't one of immediate relief for God's people, for Israel. But it's a prophecy of future promise and future hope. Micah was one of God's prophets who stood resolutely and proclaimed the truth of God, even the hard truth that had to be proclaimed. In chapter 3 of Micah, verse 8, Micah speaks of how he was filled with the power and the Spirit of the Lord. And he was filled with justice and, and courage to declare the rebellion and the sin of God's people. You see, God's people had transgressed God's covenant with them. The covenant they had made through his Servant Moses, the Mosaic Covenant was contingent upon their obedience or their disobedience. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1, the Lord had said to his people through Moses, Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God, your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. But in Deuteronomy twenty-eight fifteen. Conversely, Moses says, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe and to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Because of their disobedience, the children of Israel would soon experience God's judgment and they would be exiled from their land They would be exiled by the pagan nation of Assyria or Babylon. But Micah Micah points out their sin. They had worshipped false gods in chapter 1, verse 7. They had oppressed the poor and they had stolen their land. They hadn't looked out for the good of the city or the people in the city. Instead, those leaders, they were greedy. They were looking out for their own gain. The leaders hated good and they, they loved what was evil, Micah says in 3.5. They abhorred justice and twisted what was straight. Chapter 3, verse 9. The false prophets led people astray. They preached a false message of security. They had taken bribes. They had led people down the wrong road. And they had led them further away from God, not closer to God. And so in the midst of all of this sin and destruction and devastation that is coming upon the people of Israel, there are two assurances of Micah's prophecy that I think are important for us this morning to see. The first one is this. The promised Messiah is the true king of God's people. This is what he is speaking of in verses 1 through 3. The promise of Messiah takes center stage in Micah's prophecy of hope. In the midst of the nation's sin, there remained those who were a faithful remnant. In verse 1, now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. Micah's calling out to the remnant to ready themselves for the siege. The point of the text isn't that they have hope for defeating the Assyrians. But it's to look past their defeat 
and realize that their hope must be in God. They must trust in God for his deliverance. In fact, the point Micah's making is that military might won't stand against Assyria. King Hezekiah is a weak king. He will not stand. He says, with the rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. Speaking of Hezekiah, but prophetically also, speaking of how they will treat Christ when he comes. So while this text is about Israel, it's more about God's faithfulness to his covenant. And the point is, he will provide a deliverer. He will provide a true king that stands against the king Hezekiah. This true king won't back down. He will be a righteous and right king. He will be a a powerful king. But he will be a king that looks out for the good of his people. You see, the remnant held up inside the walls of Jerusalem was no match for the conquering powerful Assyrian army. The siege would defeat them and take them captive. And the point is, in much the same way, we must see that in our own strength, we are no match against the power and forces of Satan and the temptation of sin that assails us every day. The truth is, Satan wants to lay siege to our lives and against our lives. Satan wants to conquer us. And we too need a deliverer. Like the children of Israel were needing, they were in need of a deliverer. We too need a deliverer. Deliverer, we must see that our hope isn't to be placed in mere men, but it's to be placed in Christ, our Savior. You see, it's only through the redemptive and reformative power of the gospel that lives can be changed. There is no amount of laws that can be enacted and social reforms that can be enacted that will truly change the hearts of men and women. The point is, we mustn't be dependent on government to change the cities and nations. We must depend on God to change cities and nations. And this is the role of the church. We must depend upon the gospel to transform the lives of men and women. It is the gospel that delivers men and women from bondage to sin. It is the work of Christ, the work that Christ came to do, that delivers you and me from the power and the strongholds of sin. It is Christ who breaks down the barriers that we build up. It is Christ that brings us into God's presence, as we'll see in a moment. It's Christ who brings us to ultimate peace with God. Israel needed a deliverer. The enemy was laying siege to the city. It was going to tear down their walls. And that deliverer wouldn't come for another 700 years. The person of Christ. The baby in the manger. Micah's prophecy is a prophecy of hope in the midst of our spiritual bondage. And it it points us to see that Christ is our only hope. Church, listen, that's why we as Crosspoint say Crosspoint exists to make disciples of all nations for the good of all people, for the glory of God. The work of Christ through Crosspoint is interacting with the people in the city. It's interacting with people in our work environment. It is, it is loving on people with the hope of the gospel, with the hope of the message of Christ at Christmas. The work of Crosspoint in this city is to be a blessing, to be used for the good of the city, 
And however we can do that, we want to do that. We want to be faithful in doing that. And if that means building a building as we're talking about, then, then praise God, let's move forward with that. If, if that means uh, finding new ways to start Bible studies in, uh, in, in, in apartment complexes so that we might see people grow in a knowledge and understanding of God, then by all means, let's do that. Let us celebrate the work that God has called us to do and the way that he has gifted us to serve him and to be used for his glory. Micah also focuses their hope of deliverance on an unlikely place. I want you to see this. We see it in verse 2. Look at what he says. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. In verse 2, he says, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Micah focuses their hope to an unlikely place. The deliverance, he says, will come from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. The place is significant. It's significant for at least three reasons. One, it has to do with the name. Bethlehem means what? House of bread. In the Hebrew, it literally just means house of bread. Ephrathah, it, it, means, uh, it means fruitful, that God is fruitful. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence that Christ is born in this place of house of bread and, and fruitful. It's significant because he's calling our attention to God's faithful promise to Abraham and the Davidic line. This was the birthplace of David. It was the birthplace, birthplace of, of Jesus. And if you look back in Genesis 17, 4 through 7, there's an everlasting covenant that God makes with his servant Abraham. And if we fast forward into the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, we see Matthew quotes from the prophet Isaiah. When the wise men come to King Herod and say, we've come to worship this king of the Jews who was born... We saw the star and it led us here. And so Herod gathers all the, the chief priests and the wise people of the city and, he, and, he, and the scribes and he asked them about it. And they said to him, in Bethlehem, here's where he was born. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's significant. The names teach us that Jesus is the one who sustains our spiritual lives. He is the bread of life, he tells us in in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the bread of life. Not only is he bread of life, but but he is the one that provides fruit in the lives of disciples, as we see as well in in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, uh, abide in me and I in you. As the branch remains in the vine, it what? It bears fruit. I think the point that God wants us to see is Jesus comes to us, the Messiah comes to us through the place called House of Bread and the place which is fruitful and He satisfies and sustains our spiritual lives. He is the one who is faithful to produce fruit in the lives of His children. And thirdly, it shows us, it shows us the way that God works through unlikely places and people and circumstances. Notice what He says in verse 2, too little to be among the clans of Judah. 
Bethlehem was such an insignificant and small place that nothing good would come from it. It's scarcely spoken of in in the pages of history. It was a small rural village in obscurity. You know, one might expect a great king to come from a large city, a great city, but not from Bethlehem. It was too little to even be numbered among the clans of Judah. We might think of it in the earthly contrast between maybe King David and King Saul, right? King Saul was the people's choice. He was tall and he was handsome. He was a great leader because of the earthly qualities that he possessed. But you know the description that the Old Testament gives us of King David? He was a ruddy, small boy. He was a little shepherd boy. You know where he was from? He was from an obscure little backwoods town called Bethlehem. But you know what? David was God's chosen king. David was the one that God raised up. David was the one that God said of him, he was a, he's a man after my own heart. It wasn't Saul who slayed the giant. No, Saul stood by while the young, ruddy, little shepherd boy came forward with a great faith, and he is the one who slew the giant. You know, I think the Apostle Paul, he certainly knew that God works through unlikely people in places and circumstances. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 31, hear what the gospel does in the lives of God's people. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world to, to, and the despised, God has chosen the things which are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast only in the Lord or boast in the Lord. You see, Jesus' lowly entrance into the world cautions us against the human ways to greatness. And he calls us to see that God's way is altogether different than man's way. He was a shoemaker, an average shoemaker. But in the evenings after work, he studied Greek and Hebrew. In a variety of other modern languages, he devoted, uh, he devoured Captain Cook's voyages to expand his horizons, which because of his poverty kept him bound to a small forgotten English village. Some people said his time would have been better spent getting a second job to support his ever-growing family. But the young man's passion wasn't a curious, self-satisfying hobby. Early in life, he had become concerned about the millions of unbelievers outside of Europe, and he was trying to figure out how he could be the one he could help, how he could bring the gospel to them. With God's help, he slowly figured it out. He ended up going to India to serve as the first Protestant missionary in the modern era. His passion inspired a generation of men and women such as Adoniram Judson and Hudson Taylor and David Livingston. Inspired them to take up the cause of missions and give their life to missions. Because one impoverished shoemaker named William Carey followed his God-given passion. Large parts of the world that had little or no access to the gospel 
have large populations of people today who confess Christ as Lord. You know, in our modern era of Christianity, I think we need to be careful not to elevate people to the status of superstar in Christianity. The reality is God wants to use each of us to make his glory known among the nations. God wants to use each of us to make his name famous in the lives of others. I'm thankful for guys like Mark Dever and and Al Mohler and Lincoln Duncan and David Platt and Tony Marita and a whole host of other guys that we could name. I'm, I'm thankful for these men and thankful for women such as Beth Moore. I'm thankful for these people. I think they're a gift to the body of Christ. But you know what I'm also thankful for? I'm also thankful for a guy that you never knew. His name was Mr. Bunny. That's what I knew him as. He was my fourth grade boy's Sunday school teacher. And every week, he would take his cane and struggle and hobble up the stairs to teach a young fourth grade boy's Sunday school class. I'm thankful for guys like Brian Eberhardt, the first youth minister that I knew, who invested in me and taught me that being a Christian wasn't necessarily, didn't mean being a nerd or being boring. I'm thankful for guys like Rick Morton who, who saw a young man that was struggling and in his youth years and he pulled me aside and wanted to, to invest in me and teach me and equip me and disciple me. I'm thankful for guys like Tim LaFleur who would pour his life out serving others and making disciples of others. Most of these people, we have no idea who they are. But in each of our lives, there are people who have served us in that way along the journey You see, all of these men were uniquely gifted to serve Christ in a seemingly insignificant way. But it was a glorious act of worship that they laid before their sovereign king. And I want to challenge us in the same way to see that God calls us to serve him. From the world's perspective, God chooses to use unlikely towns and unlikely cities and unlikely pastors and unlikely saints to accomplish his great work in the world. But from God's perspective, there's no work too small or insignificant. As Jesus was eating the last supper with his disciples, he laid aside his garments, he took a basin, and he did the lowliest thing of all and washed the disciples' feet. And then he told them, you, what you've seen me do to you, you do likewise to one another. You see, his origins are from the days of eternity. It says literally, it means forever and everlasting. We get a sense of this in Psalm 102.25 of old. You, you founded the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. Here's what Micah says of Christ. Here's the prophecy that he gives in verse 2. From, from you, speaking of Bethlehem, of Ephrathah, from you, one of you will go forth for me. To be a ruler in Israel. He says of Christ that he'll he'll carry my purpose and he'll carry my message as ruler of my people. You see, the coming of Christ is God's enacting of his eternal plan of redemption. To be the deliverer. He's not like any earthly king. He's the true king of God's people who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life up as a ransom for many. So in verse 3, therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Speaking of the remnant of Israel, until the time, until it's time for Christ to come, 
Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. There will be a calling home of all those who are of the remnant. And and people will turn and they will be converted when this Christ, this Messiah, has come. And that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit descended upon the apostles and they preached the gospel. And many were converted that day. The second assurance that Micah gives us is the promised Messiah grants protection and peace. This is our closing point this morning in verses 4 and 5. The promised Messiah grants protection and peace. As the shepherd, he grants protection. It was the role of the shepherd to protect the sheep. In verse 4, the beginning, it says, And he will arise and shepherd his flock. Some versions say he will stand. The point is, there's action here. You know what the good shepherd is doing? He's not sitting down watching the sheep as they graze in the pasture. No, he's standing up. He arises and he's leading his flock. He's shepherding them. He's taking care of them. He's protecting and providing for their needs. This is the picture of the good shepherd. This is what we see in Psalm 23, the characterization of God as he leads his people. And we see it manifested in the person, in the work of Christ. With his staff, he guides and directs the sheep. But with the crook, you know what he does? He takes them and he pulls them back from danger. And he pulls them to safety. He will arise. He will take action. He doesn't sit idly by. You know what? You know what God did? In the person of Christ, he entered our humanity. He takes action to redeem us. I want you to hear me. Christian, there's no sin too great in which God can't redeem. There's no place you have gone too far in your life that God won't pull you back. There's an eternal security in the hand of God. That's why he says in John, in the Gospel of John, I, I think chapter 10, but he says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. I and the Father are one. There's an eternal security in Christ. And so Christ is the one who arises to shepherd his people. The promised Messiah grants protection and peace. Secondly, look at, look at what else he says. In the strength of the Lord. That is, in the divine power of God. He has come by God's divine power, and there is no one, there is nothing that can thwart the power of God. Jesus will bring God's good and perfect plan to pass in your life. And you know what? His timing is just right. He's not delinquent. No one and nothing can thwart his plan. He doesn't delay. In fact, I'll submit to you that Christ's coming 700 years after Micah's prophecy was just in time. As Peter says in 2 Peter 3.8, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. You see, God is he's grand. He's good. He's looking out for the good of His people, but also for the glory of His name. And so I want to encourage you to depend upon the strength of the Lord to see Christ as the strong one who is our deliverer. 
His name is great. He says, for the majesty of the name of the Lord, speaking of how he with his power and his strength will keep his sheep, the flock of his, his fold, he will keep them safe. For it is the name of God which will invoke the praise of every man and woman at that day of consummation when he returns. Every knee will bow at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, his name or his name is great. So we see secondly in this point as savior. He is the deliverer who grants peace. As savior. Christ is the deliverer who grants peace. And they will remain, it says, because at that time he will be great. Listen, to the ends of the earth, this one will be our peace. No one will be able to overcome Christ. John 16, 33, Jesus tells his disciples, in fact, Jesus says, take courage, I've overcome the world. God's people will enjoy security because Christ has conquered our enemy, sin and death. And in doing so, he crushed Satan under his feet. So the point that Micah wants us to see and that we'll end on this morning is simply this. He is our peace. He's our peace. What is peace? Is peace the absence of war? Is peace simply mindless conformity? Not stirring things up? Not asking hard questions? No. Well, the people of Israel would have understood Micah's prophecy first to speak, listen, to political peace because they're about to be sieged, right? They're, they're, being, they're being overrun and overtaken. So they, they would hear this as, as the, the need for political peace. The point isn't ultimately a political peace. The greatest need to see is that this deliverer will ultimately bring peace with God. For it's through Christ's ministry and work on the cross that we who are under the wrath of God because of our sin have been brought into the peace of God. Read Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. Hear Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. What is that hope? Oh, it's that Christ, the Messiah, has come. We have waited and he has come. And as we approach Christmas Day, we approach that day to celebrate that Christ, yes, he has come. But that's not the end. He is coming again. And so hear me out. When he comes again, it will be a day of swift judgment for all those who are not, who do not find themselves under the peace of God through Christ. But it will be a day of jubilee and rejoicing and exalting in the glory of God for all those who find themselves recipients of the peace of God. And so our greatest need this Christmas is to realize that our guilt and sin before God has been forgiven and peace with God has become ours in Christ. It is available to us in Christ. Our great expectation then is that God would use us as his people 
to generously live and to graciously proclaim this message of Christ's coming and his return as we eagerly await his return. I want to challenge you this morning as we approach Christmas, we celebrated Advent, his coming. Are you at a place today where you can truly celebrate the joy and the peace of Christ because of what Christ has done in your life? I want to encourage you that there is hope and there's great joy as we walk with Christ. And so if, if you've not come to a place in your life where you know the peace of Christ that comes through entering a relationship, confessing your sin before the Lord, I want to challenge you to place your faith and trust in the promised Messiah, the one who comes. He is the only one who can deliver us from the bondage of sin that grips our souls. And when he does, he gives us peace with God. That peace can be your peace today. If you repent of your sin, confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, surrender your life and believe upon the gift of salvation through Christ. I want to encourage you, if that's you this morning, to simply utter a prayer asking for God's forgiveness, repenting before the Lord, trusting Christ as Savior, saying, confessing that you believe in Christ as the Messiah, the one who has come from God. And surrender your life to him that he might save you. So I pray that if that's you this morning, if you're in that struggle, if if you're in that place, that you you would do that, surrender your life to the Lord. Church, I want to challenge us as we we highlight and celebrate Advent, that we be mindful that while Christ came the first time as a baby in the manger, he is coming again. And let that fuel, let it fuel our hope and our joy and our worship and our praise of him this Christmas. As we gather as a family this Christmas, let that fuel our praise of our great God, that he has made a way for us to have salvation. And so I want to challenge you this morning to worship the Lord in that, in that vein with that mindset. To sing his praise because he has defeated sin and death. He has conquered sin and death through defeating and crushing Satan. And so call out to him if you're struggling. Cry out to him. And believer, rejoice in him. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your good gift in our salvation. And Lord, for your children who are struggling this morning, In the midst of this Christmas season, I pray that you would strengthen them. Lord, would you would you be the satisfier of their soul? Lord, would you produce fruit in all of our lives? And we ask you, Heavenly Father, that if there are any this morning who are struggling to surrender their life to you, that you would call them and strengthen them to surrender their lives to you for your glory, for the the fame of your name. And that they might be at peace with you eternally. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning?